Uh, my name is Craig Lois. Sitting to my right, your left, is my partner, Declan Gorley, uh, in our New York Workers' Compensation practice. Thanks for being with us today, Declan. Uh, thanks, for everybody, for coming in today on this uh, holiday. I know everyone wanted to be home, but said, you know what, I'm coming in just for this webinar today. Uh, this is an absolutely live webinar. Of course not. Uh, so little <laughs> things like this are going to happen. Um, Please feel free to ask us questions as we're going. We have a second uh, laptop over here so we can see questions as they come in. Uh, we'll do our best to answer every question at the end of today's webinar. Um, all right, so we're going to begin today making some basic assumptions. And those basic assumptions are that there is a workers' compensation claim and you've got a Medicare red flag. And we're going to walk through today exactly the way we would process a case that's heading for a Section 32 lump sum dismissal settlement and uh, some sort of Medicare overlay or Medicare red flag. Um, Medicare's been around since 1965 when it was enacted. It followed the Social Security Act, which was a lot earlier. And the idea of Medicare uh, was to provide uh, medical benefits in addition to those basic retirement benefits. Uh, as originally enacted back in 1965, the idea was you'd have to pay into it for 10 years, and that was to eliminate the what happened with Social Security, where some people receive Social Security after only paying in for a day or maybe even uh, zero days. Uh, it was uh, means-tested, so you had to be 65 years old. You had to be a permanent citizen of the United States. And then there were a couple exceptions to the general rule of you have to pay into Medicare uh, and be a citizen and be 65. And those exceptions were really in the case of what they thought back in 1965 were dire needs. That is, you have end-stage renal disease. Uh, or you've been on Social Security disability for 24 months. And the reason that's significant is because that's typically the overlay we see now with workers' compensation benefits, uh, where the claimant is uh, on Social Security disability, they've been on it for a long period of time. There is a retroactive period. Sometimes Social Security disability awards will look back for a little bit of time. So that's typically the red flag that uh, we're walking into. I should also remark that uh, when Medicare was passed, uh, and indeed when Social Security was passed, the idea was, first of all, when Social Security was passed, the life expectancy was 66. So the idea that you would get a benefit at 65 and then most people were dead at 66, uh, you know, goes to show you that they weren't anticipating that this was going to cover 40 or 50 years of people's lives. And the th same thing with Medicare. When this was enacted, um, the idea was this was going to come into emergency circumstances for people that were before retirement age. Uh, back when this was passed in 1965, the number one diagnosis for getting SSDI, that's pre-retirement disability, was actually cancer. And the presumption was, you know, you're going to die from that. Uh, now the number one uh, SSDI entitlement is for? Low back injuries. Yep. And, and number two is psych. So, you know, not obviously not life-threatening conditions anymore. Um, Quickly, this, they ran out of money with Medicare. In 1980, they passed the Medicare as a Secondary Payer Act. We're not going to dive too much into the law, but the law basically says that Medicare shouldn't be paying for medical treatment where there is another primary payer who should be expected to pay. All you need to know, basically, is that workers' compensation insurance is always going to be primary uh, to Medicare, and it's supposed to be primary to Medicare uh, for anything covered under the workers' compensation award or settlement. So that's all I really need to know. Now, the entertaining thing is, of course, they passed it in 1980, uh, but absolutely no enforcement, uh, no real compliance either. I mean, I've been at this for a long time, uh, maybe a couple years longer than you, and I remember back before 2001, 
uh, or in that 2001 time frame, we would put cases through on the record, and there would be a full and final lump sum dismissal, and the claimant uh, or the petitioner would say to the judge, uh, well, who's going to pay for my Medicare, or who's going to pay for my medicals now that I'm settling my case? And, you know, the judge would just sort of say, uh, charge it to Medicare. And, and we would say that, too, as counsel, because we knew back then, there, even though the um, secondary payer stuff was on the books, nobody was actually enforcing it whatsoever, and nobody was really in compliance with it. Uh, that's really how we used to practice back then. But 2001 comes along, everything changes. So today, we're going to give a big overview of Medicare overall um, and the things that we, we are concerned about and how we look at these cases. So uh, Declan's going to talk to you about the difference between a lien and an allocation, when we're worried about a lien, when we're worried about an allocation. I'm going to talk about some of the big um, why we care issues, like who's, why are we doing any of this? Why are we going through all of this rigmarole? Uh, we'll talk about the red flags that should sort of always wake you up uh, and say to yourself, wait a second, we might have some Medicare secondary payer exposure here. Uh, and then we're going to talk about how Medicare actually responds to us uh, when we are uh, contacting them to ask them for a review. All right. So with that, that's the big overview today. Now, this is going to be very one-on-one -on -one level. We're going to give sort of a big overview. We're going to try to teach uh, everybody attending today's webinar um, how we as attorneys look at it. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some specific questions about your cases. We'll do our best to answer them. Um, and you can also, of course, email us your questions. So without further ado, let's talk about the difference between a lien and an allocation. Uh, the most important thing whenever you talk about lien versus allocation is that liens are money that's been paid out in the past. And allocations are possible future money that you're going to have to allocate for the future medical treatment. Uh, with respect to liens, the way typically this happens is someone gets their Medicare card, they go to their doctor, and now they treat for every single thing that they have wrong with them with their Medicare card. So if the yeah. case is for a, a back injury, they're going to the doctor and saying, uh, I got back pain, here's my Medicare card, and then the, the doctor is sending the bill to Medicare, and the bill's getting paid by Medicare. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything malicious there. I think they're just so used to producing that Medicare card, they don't think twice. Or possibly they just go to the doctor all the time, and then the doctor has it saved in the system, and they're just saying it's Medicare, and no one's even thinking twice about it. Mm -hmm. And all this is maybe happening for a period of maybe a few years. It could be happening for, who knows, a decade. And then all of a sudden we want to settle the case, and that's when Medicare looks at what have we paid in this case and should we have paid it. And they basically look through all the codes that have been submitted for, for the billing, and they realize, oh, we've been paying for, we've paid $20,000 for medical treatment for the back. We should never have paid this. And then they're going to assert a lien and attempt to get that money back from the carrier. Um, and essentially they won't allow us to settle the case until we've paid that money back. Yeah, and let's just put up a quick slide that shows what those sort of uh, allocate, what those liens look like. Uh, they look like spreadsheets. They usually have the CPT code right there on the left-hand side. Um, and some of our clients have been pretty aggressive. Yeah, we don't typically see these, but uh, we have claims reviews where the adjuster will tell us we have to scrub this, uh, this lien because half the stuff on this is diagnostic codes for something. I mean, we've seen things for uh, kidney failure, which is clearly, in most of our cases, that's not going to be related to our workers' comp case. Um, all the types of things that have been coded, and based on the coding, we can quickly see that this shouldn't be billed to us. Uh, so just because you got a lien letter from Medicare doesn't mean essentially that you're going to be on the hook for it. I would definitely recommend looking at those very closely. There's software out there, uh, even manually going through, although it might be very pain, painful. Um, but this could save thousands of dollars in the long run. Oh, yeah, easily. I mean, and, you know, remember these uh, claimants are just going into that doctor. They're whipping out their Medicare card, and the doctor's picking, paying for their orthopedic treatment and also their <laughs> sore throat. Right. So you'll see it all, all on there all the time. I just want to back up uh, a couple of slides because we skipped ahead just to show everyone what that lien payment looked like. Um, but this is sort of visually 
what we're going through when we're thinking about um, do we have to consider Medicare's interest? Um, and essentially, the most important question is, and, and we just touched on that, is are we doing a full and final settlement that closes out medical, not a consideration we have to make uh, where medical is remaining open? Well, Medicare could anytime come for their lien and say, even though you're still paying up benefits, we still want you to pay for these services that you, we've already paid for, essentially. Uh, al with a, regards to an allocation, the only way we're ever going to care about protecting Medicare's interest in the future is if the medical is being closed currently. So if the Medicare medical is being stay, staying open and there's potential for us to just keep paying for that, then we're not going to have to look in the future and allocate funds. Um, so whenever we settle cases indemnity only, which we try not to do as much as possible, but it definitely happens in New York. We, uh, we can do that under Section 32. If we're closing out solely the indemnity portion, we don't have to get an allocation. If we're closing out future medical benefits, so close, we call it full and final, closing the indemnity and the medical treatment, or even if you're just closing out medical treatment, basically we have to look into the future and, and allocate what should be there to protect Medicare's interests. Yeah, good point. So the point is, no, no matter how you're closing the case, medical only, indemnity only, medical and indemnity, you're always going to have to re re resolve that lien at that time. And only when you're closing out future medical are you so concerned about that set aside. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk a, a little bit more about why we care about any of this. And the answer is because there's penalties. Um, absolutely the most significant penalty is the idea of double damages against any entity. Uh, we haven't seen that. And we haven't really seen any independent enforcement, meaning the Department of Justice, who is um, tasked with enforcing the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, coming out. But... Uh, there are certainly match programs. There are uh, database match programs, um, and certainly a lot of our clients are forced to provide uh, information to the federal government as they pay claims. Uh, and certainly in New York, which has now moved to full EDI with the Freud's and Shroy's, it seems to me quite simple for the federal government, if they want to, uh, to simply match payer and compliance. Um, more significant, or the way these really get teed up, is that the Medicare beneficiary goes and presents their uh, Medi uh, the Medicare card to get more treatment, and Medicare has cut them off. They give them a termination because they should have had a set aside. They should have paid back their lien, and it wasn't. And what Medicare will do is it will take self-help. It will, if they believe that there should have been a set aside allocation, or if a lien was supposed to be reimbursed, Medicare will set off benefits until the claim that their claim is satisfied. So, if Medicare uh, does a post facto examination of the Section 32 and says, you know what, you should have set aside thirty thousand dollars. They will then withhold $30,000 of medical benefits to this claimant and to this Medicare recipient uh, uh, until they believe that their claim is satisfied. Um, and, and that's really the way that the claimant's going to get involved and get, some, get angry about this case. Go back to their attorney and say, eh, what did you do here? Uh, how come my, my Medicare uh, got uh, uh, canceled or suspended? Um, all right, so there's that. Now, let's talk about the red flags. Let's talk about when we are... You know, our alarm bells are going off because we're worried about the secondary payer exposure. Well, I think the most uh, common way is if the person's already on Medicare. So we know that they've mm -hmm. applied and they're, well, if you're 65, they're audited, obviously. Or if they're on SSD and they're receiving SSD for the past two years, that they're already entitled to Medicare. Um, as you talked about before, there's a possibility you could be on SSD and not, not yet receive your Medicare benefits. So that something to research and, and get that letter signed by uh, by the claimant to get Social Security verification to, to confirm that they're actually um, receiving Medicare benefits even if they're on SSD. The most common way that you might look past it is if there's a settlement of $250,000 and there's a reasonable expectation. So if the case, if the person's applied for SSD, 
There's a potential for them to appeal that decision that they've been denied for SSD. Um, there's a reasonable expectation that sometime in the future they're going to become a Medicare beneficiary. And if the settlement is over $250,000, we need to move ahead and get that allocation from uh, CMS. Right, and in every single Section 32 that we're doing now, regardless of the size of the Section 32, we're asking our adversary to have their client fill out uh, what we're calling it a Medicare affidavit. And mm -hmm. This is essentially a document that we've created. We think this is best practice, and it's at, the claimant has to affirm and attest that I have not applied for, I have not applied for and have been denied, I'm not appealing a denial of Medicare benefits. Um, and we put that in there very carefully so to try to give us a little protection should we later discover that they misled everybody. And typically we're getting the claimant to sign a release so that we can actually go to Social Security themselves and say, what's this person's eligibility? Because a lot of workers' comp attorneys, plaintiff's attorneys, don't represent them in the Social Security claim. So they may not even know. Or they may ask them, and the claimant may not even give them a truthful answer, either purposefully or not mm -hmm. purposefully. Mm -hmm. So they may not even be aware that they're collecting Social Security disability. And they just tell us, no, they're not. And then when we do a search, well, lo and behold, they maybe have been on it for the past five years. Exactly. Right. So that's why we love to document, 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 and then trust but verify it over and over again. All right. Uh, let's finish up by talking about how Medicare responds to us. So uh, there's really two things that we're doing here with Medicare. First, going to them and saying, hey, do you have a lien already? Have you made any what we'll call conditional payments? Uh, did you already pay for treatment that maybe should have been covered under my workers' compensation case? And that's relatively simple. Um, the Center for Medicare Services has a portal uh, that we can submit those requests to. Typically, we try to have a vendor do it, or we can have our adversary do it. In fact, if the claimant calls themselves, um, they can just dial a number and get that uh, conditional payment statement uh, directly sent to them. So that's actually the best. But Medicare is very, very good about getting back to us about potential liens. We're talking about a timeline of weeks, not months. Weeks, not months. Um, allocation review thresholds. Um, Medicare will only respond, they'll only tell you about a future allocation if you are exceeding their threshold. Right. So uh, even if the person's currently entitled to Medicare, they're not going to review that settlement unless the overall settlement's more than $25,000 on a Section 32. So typically, that's most Section 32s in New York. They're typically going for more than that, so you know, they are reviewing most of them. Um, two, they're not going to review a future entitlement. I'm sorry, I set aside if the claim is not currently entitled and the settlement is not more than $250,000, and that's something that you touched on earlier, so that when the uh, claimant is not currently eligible or entitled, uh, but there is a reasonable expectation, they're not going to look at it unless that overall settlement is above $250,000. Now, Medicare is always going to respond with a lien if there is an entitlement and if there have been conditional payments made. Even if no payments are made, they'll at least come back and say, no, we've got no payments made. By the way, that's also a good hint that the claimant's probably not Medicare. Um, they will not review if there's no entitlement. They will not review below the thresholds. We just went over that. Um, but they will send you a consent letter. So if there is an allocation proposed, let's say it's a $200,000 settlement and we're going to put aside $25,000 for future medicals, they will absolutely send you back a letter. The timeline for that is under 30 days, and they will say, yep, uh, we think this is inappropriate. Or they'll say this is not inappropriate. You need to put more money aside or less money aside. Uh, they will also review any structured settlements, any annuitization of the overall settlement, um, and then they will memorialize that in a letter back which then becomes part of our over, overall Section 32 settlement document package. Uh, Medicare is expecting compliance here. This is pure compliance work from the attorney's perspective. And our job is really typically limited, just making sure that every um, uh, I has been dotted and T has been crossed, making sure that the vendors do what they were supposed to do, making sure that we have all of those paperwork together when we put that Section 32 settlement through. 
All right. Uh, if you've been following along at home, and I'm actually very pleasantly surprised at the number of people that we have here today with us, uh, almost 40 attending today on, uh, on a holiday Monday. This is pretty good. Um, if you're following along at home, please know that in our, our handbooks to New Jersey and New York workers' compensation law, we've essentially gone through Chapter 20. So there's a lot more in-depth information, including examples and checklists in the books and also in today's handout. Um, all right. Let me go over to this computer right over here and see if we have any questions uh, from the audience today. If you haven't typed in your question, this is the time to do it. Okay, I have one from Patrick. Uh, I'm only going to say the first name of the uh, questioner. Okay, let's see if we can get this one. I hope this is an easy one, Patrick. Okay, uh, Greg, after reviewing a Medicare lien, does the carrier have to reimburse them for the full amount they paid? Or is there a way to pay that would have been paid under a fee schedule had the bills been submitted to the workers' comp carrier to begin with? Okay, so that's kind of a twofold question. So question number one is, do you have to pay them or reimburse the full amount of their conditional payment lien? No, because oftentimes we're disputing that. I mean, you talked about scrubbing. Uh, some of our attorney, our clients referring to it as scrubbing that uh, conditional payment lien. Uh, and, you know, do we have to... Uh, pay exactly what's in it. No, it is absolutely challengeable, right? And you've had experiences with that. Yeah, it's typically something that the carrier will do or the, the TPA will do and just tell us and give us an update of what they've been doing. But very often we'll hear, we got the CMS or we got the lien letter back and we're appealing it for this reason. So this is certainly something that you could be in communication with uh, CMS and also before you get to CMS, Medicare about liens. Okay. And then the second part of Patrick's question is, uh, is there, a, is there a way to pay what would have been paid under a fee schedule had the bills been submitted to the comp carrier to begin with? And the answer is no. Um, first of all, the, the Medicare fee schedule is generally better than our New York fee schedule in terms of dollars per procedure. So you're probably doing better off reimbursing them than you would going through the, Medic, the New York uh, workers' compensation fee schedule. So that's number one. But number two is, no, you're not entitled to say, well, under a separate system, I would have paid less. If they've paid for something conditionally, the lien reimbursement is not what you could have negotiated the payment down to. It's what the government actually paid on, the, on behalf of that claimant. Okay. Uh, I got a question here from Lee. So people, these questions are just popping up. Uh, look, this is the last question. So if anybody has any more questions, type them fast. Type now so I can see them. Um, all right, so Lee says, what is the best way to appeal the CMS lien to most adequately protect our client? Okay, and so what she's asking here is, this is the case of a conditional payment lien. Well, you can do that directly with CMS on behalf of your client, uh, going right to the contractor. And the reason for that is uh, you're entitled to do that. You don't have to accept that lien. And again, I think it's fairly common uh, that we see that our clients, when they actually review the conditional payment statement, they're saying, wait a second. Uh, I mean, a very simple thing to do is look at the CPG codes. And, you know, the, it's, it's not an orthopedic one. It's not a neurologic one. You've got one for sore throats or for the kidney failure, which I think the example you used before, where very clearly we're talking about codes for things that have really nothing to do with the workers' comp case. And remember, these are claimants who maybe are entitled to workers' comp benefits, already have a Medicare card, and they're just used to, I think, again, we don't think there's any maliciousness there, typically, when they're getting treatment through Medicare. They're going to the doctor, they're complaining about their sore throat, and they just also happen to compare, complain about their rotator cuff injury at work. The doctor treats both body parts and charges Medicare for both. 
again, I don't think there has to be anything malicious there for that to uh, become an issue. But you can absolutely challenge that. That is something that can be done directly. And just make sure that you follow any timelines that are set out in the letter, because typically they'll say, if you wish to appeal this decision or believe there's an issue, they give you 30 or 45 days. And if you don't respond within that 30 or 45 days, it could become final. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, okay, Leonard asks a question. Uh, Greg, is there a way we can force a provider to submit to us instead of Medicare where they know we're the workers' comp carrier. Yeah, so they should be doing that, okay? The doctors should know, Leonard, that their duty is, if it's a workers' comp injury, to submit the bill directly to the comp carrier and not to Medicare. They should know and they should be um, acting as if the workers' comp carrier is primary. There's nothing, I mean, you could call them certainly and remind them, and we can send them letters, uh, but uh, in, uh, short of that, it's up to the physician to know that, hey, this is a workers' comp case, right? I mean, I don't know of any laws in New York or any Medicare laws that would allow us. I don't think there's any punitive way to go after the doctor and say, hey, if you don't submit this bill to the proper entity, you're not going to get paid. So yeah. essentially uh, voluntary compliance almost for, regal, for, for bills. Um, I'm not aware of any. There's definitely no New York law, and I'm not aware of any Medicare law that would entitle us to go after them in any way. Yeah, me neither. I think that this is the doctor just needs to do what they're supposed to do. Uh, they're supposed to understand that workers' comp is primary, and so that's, that's how I think that should work. All right. Uh, I don't see any other questions. We had those three from thank you, Patrick, uh, Lee, and Leonard. Uh, if you have any other questions, feel free to email us. Uh, of course, uh, we do this webinar once a month. Uh, we do a 12 o'clock session and a 3 o'clock session. It's just a little bit of what we do. I hope everybody that's watching has a copy of our handbooks. If you don't, uh, please ask for it. We'll send you one. Um, we have lots of articles on our website. I mean, something like 12 or 13 new workers' compensation-specific articles on our website every month. And we also do a newsletter. Next month, our topic is appeals. So what do we do when we get that outcome from the board panel that, or from the trial um, judge that we're not happy with, how do we appeal that in New York, and then what are our options beyond that? All right, thanks for uh, watching, thanks for coming today, and I uh, look forward to seeing you next month.